0: Open your Bibles to Matthew, Matthew's Gospel, chapter 27. Yesterday, as I was sitting in the chair, getting my hair cut, talking to the barber, and anyway, the conversation came up, what do you do, and one thing leads to another, and, and uh, I was telling him that I was preaching through Matthew, and that we were in Matthew 27, and that we had been going about it for a very long time. I think I told him six years, because I think that's about right, and uh, Fortunately, he didn't cut my ear off when I said that. I mean, he had that straight razor thing going, but he went, six years. But we're almost done. We're almost done. It's, um, it's kind of a little bittersweet, don't you think, just to be coming close to the end of this thing? It's been such, a, such an amazing journey of following uh, Matthew and his recounting of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. You know, the New Testament declares with certainty the death, burial, and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. There's no question about that. But the majority of the ink invested in the New Testament is not so much the declaration of that reality, that that space-time historical event, as it is about the meaning of that incredible event. Jesus died in the reign of Pontius Pilate. He was crucified and buried. And on the third day he rose from the dead. The tomb was empty. It's empty to this day. He lives forevermore. That's a fact. But what it means is what occupies the writers of the New Testament and is indeed what ought to occupy our thinking as well. Reflecting on that reality, Peter as he preached to the Jewish people, his brethren, on Pentecost, 50 days following the uh, resurrection, he wrote the following. Men of Israel, listen to these words. Jesus the Nazarene, a man attested to you by God with miracles and wonders and signs which God performed through him in your midst, just as you yourselves know. This man... Delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, you nailed to a cross by the hands of godless men and put him to death. But God raised him up again, putting an end to the agony of death, since it was impossible for him to be held in its power. Acts chapter 2, verses 22 to 24. Peter declares the reality, but he declares beyond the reality of what had happened, he speaks of the wise, of the wise. So here we are in Matthew 27. This is the third of a three-part sermon entitled Killing the King, covering verses 26 through 54. And we noted as we began a couple of weeks back looking at this section that What we have here is a time of incredible darkness and a time of incredible glory. And Peter captures that when he talks about Jesus being handed over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God. It's a time of incredible wickedness, incredible darkness, but it's a time of the most amazing glory because in this event, sin is broken, death is conquered. And people have access to life everlasting. Reconciled to their creator, God. So, looking at this together, we said three words. We had a simple outline, three-word outline that captures the darkness and the glory of the event. The first was abuse. In verses 26 to 44, abuse. And we noted there... In that section, that in the midst of the description of the incredible abuse and mocking that was, that was heaped upon the Son of God, that Matthew gave us the clue to how we should understand all of this. Where three times he, he puts in the mouths of the mockers, he, he, he shows us that, that, that in their mocking they could not help but proclaim the reality of who Jesus is. The King of the Jews. So in verse 29, as the Roman soldiers conduct their mock coronation, they say, Hail, King of the Jews. In verse 37, as Pilate uh, transcribes a charge against Jesus for which he's being crucified, the charge is, This is Jesus, King of the Jews. And the Jewish leadership themselves, as they stood at the foot of the cross, in all of their derision and scorn and, and hate, They themselves cannot help but voice again that he is the king of Israel. And so we noted that in the midst of that horror, in the midst of that darkness, in the midst of that wicked mocking, there is the glory that Matthew has for us, that Jesus is the king. Jesus is the king. And, beloved, that is our hope in the midst of the darkness, that Jesus is king. Last week, we moved on to verses 45 to 50, and we moved on under the word abandonment. The word was abandonment. The first was abuse. The second was abandonment. In verse 45, Matthew records, Now from the sixth hour darkness fell upon all the land until the ninth hour. About the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani. That is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Some of those who were standing there when they heard it began saying, this man is calling for Elijah. Immediately, one of them ran and taking a sponge, filled it with sour wine and put it on a reed and gave him a drink. But the rest of them said, let us see whether Elijah will come to save him. And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit we noted last time as we unpacked this section on abandonment that we were peering into probably the greatest of mysteries into the very mystery of the godhead itself that there on that cross at that time noted here as the sixth hour that is high noon that god the father who is too pure to look upon evil pours out his wrath upon his own son. And he he evidences the reality of that in the darkness that descends upon the land. And then for the next three hours, as Jesus hung there dying, enduring the wrath of the sin of his people for all time, poured out upon him, That he became, according to Galatians chapter 3 and verse 13, he became the curse for us. That all of that accumulated wrath poured out on him. That it was necessary for the Father to abandon him on the cross. It must be that way. That inner Trinitarian fellowship that has existed from all time and exists for all time was in that moment in time fractured. We're peering into a mystery that is beyond our ability to understand. That the eternal suffering due the people of God was poured out in space and time upon the eternal one. And he drank the cup of the wrath of God to the last drop, to the last drop. We noted last time that these words recorded here in verse 46, spoken in a combination of Hebrew and Aramaic, are the first verse of the 22nd Psalm, a Psalm of David that has a much greater and fuller meaning in the greater son of David who suffered and died for his people. We consider the likelihood that this very psalm was rolling through Jesus' mind, that it was on his lips as he hung there suffering, that it was his consolation in the midst of his suffering, and that he vocalized this psalm at various points along the way. Clearly here in Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Suggested very strongly to us in John's record of the events of those hours in John 19 and beginning in verse 28. Where he writes, after this, Jesus, knowing that all things had already been accomplished, to fulfill the scripture, said, I am thirsty. We noted the likely referent to Psalm 22 and verse 15. John continues and says, a jar full of sour wine was standing there, so they put a sponge full of sour wine upon a branch of hyssop and brought it up to his mouth. Therefore, when Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, Tatalestai, it is finished. And we noted again last time the correlation to the very end of the 22nd Psalm in verse 31, where the Hebrew there could be translated, it is finished that jesus had done all that he came to do not just to suffer and to die but to suffer and to die victoriously victoriously that his death brings about his resurrection and it is his resurrection that ultimately leads to his enthronement as the greater son of david it is all one package it is all inextricably linked together Matthew records for us in verse 50 that Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. Luke tells us likely what he cried, which is, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. John 19 and verse 30 says, at that point he yielded up his spirit. Matthew says, or excuse me, he gave up his spirit. Matthew says here, he yielded up his spirit. Literally, he let his spirit go. Jesus' life was not taken from him, beloved. He gave his life as a ransom for you and for me. He says in John 10 For this reason the Father loves me, because I lay down my life so that I may take it again. No one has taken it away from me, but I lay it down on my own initiative. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it again. This commandment I received from my Father. Even in the midst of His abandonment, the glory of Christ shines through. And that takes us this morning to our final word of our outline, accomplishment. Accomplishment. Agony. Abandonment. And finally, accomplishment, beginning in verse 51. And behold, and behold, Matthew says. Edu in the Greek, a marker designed to cause one to pause and to reflect and to, and to look and to think, to slow down and to, and to consider the reality of what is to follow. By this very marker, what Matthew wants us to see here is that that these events that he has just narrated produce the most incredible results. The most amazing accomplishment is brought forth by the death of the Son as he dismissed his spirit and entered into death. According to Matthew the results, the accomplishment that is produced here are, are threefold. Three effects that he will describe for us that follow the death of the Son. These effects that he will quickly narrate for us in verses 51 to 54 are, have produced mm, a certain amount of Difference of opinion among Bible teachers and scholars. Part of it is no doubt due to the paucity of information that we have here. There are, there are all kinds of questions that one can raise here, the answers to which are a bit elusive. But what is very, very clear is the meaning of these events. There is no dispute to the meaning. Of these events and why Matthew records these events for us. So let's take a look at the three accomplishments that Matthew directly ties through the word behold to the death of the Son. Number one, access is opened. The first effect of the death of the Son is that access is opened, verse. 51, and behold, the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom, and the earth shook and the rocks were split. The veil of the temple, according to the ancient sources, the veil of the temple is most likely the veil that separated the holy place from the holy of holies that division within the temple of Israel, where there in the holy place the priesthood would minister. But there would be this veil, this curtain, this barrier that separated the place where the the priesthood would minister from the inner place, the holy of holies, the place where the ark of the covenant dwelled under the wings of the cherubim, the place where the high priest himself could go but once a year, where he poured out blood upon the mercy seat To make atonement for the sin of the people for another year. The place upon which that if one were to enter uninvited would mean instant death. Behold, the barrier, the veil has been torn. The ancient sources tell us that this veil was some 60 feet long and 30 feet wide. That it was what they call a handbreadth in thickness. That would be about the width of your palm. So we are not talking about a, a small curtain here. We are talking about a wall, as it were, comprised of 72 squares that were stitched together. The mass, the bulk, the weight of this veil, this curtain was so heavy that they talk about multitudes of priests. And in fact, in the, in the verbiage of the day, they say it took 300 priests to move it. This veil, Matthew tells us, is rent, is torn from top to bottom. Don't miss that. It is torn from top to bottom. This is not the result of, of human effect. This is the result of God. Now why? Why? did God rend the veil? Why did God tear open the veil? Why did God expose the Holy of Holies? The answer is to vividly say to all for all time that the old covenant system had now been abrogated, that it had been set aside that the means by which the people of God approached God had now been set aside. It had been replaced by that which had long before been promised in the new covenant. Now was the time that God's access into the very throne room of God, into the very presence of God, was no longer limited to a single individual, a high priest who, who attained his office through heredity who could come himself but once a year, and only with a sacrifice of the blood of a goat. But now, and for all time, access into the very presence of God would come through the final and great high priest, Jesus Christ himself. And that's exactly how the writer of the Hebrews understood these realities. Where he writes in Hebrews chapter 6 and verse 19, this hope we have as an anchor of the soul, a hope both sure and steadfast and one which enters within the veil where Jesus has entered as a forerunner for us, having become a high priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. Jesus is not of the Aaronic priesthood. He is of the tribe of Judah. And there in the the giving of a new covenant, there is a new high priest. And that high priest is Christ himself and add. Christ enters in, so we, too, in union with Christ, enter in. Again, Hebrews chapter 10 and verse 19 and following. Therefore, brethren, since we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way which he inaugurated for us through the veil, that is, his flesh, And since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a sincere heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Beloved, formerly, access to God was was remote. In fact, it was denied to all but a very few. One could only come so close. Only the high priest himself could enter into the Holy, Holies, a holy of Holies and him himself for, for just a few moments. There was the, the court of the priests, the, the holy place, and only those of the tribe of Levi, whose, whose rotation and duty brought them into the temple to do their temple duties, could draw to that place. And then there was the, the court of the men, and, and only the men of Israel could come to that place. And beyond that was the court of the women, and only, and only the women could come to that place. And beyond that, there was the court of the Gentiles, where the majority of the world stood at a distance and looked on. Separated from God, barriers, shadows, symbols, and types. And now, it has all been blown open. It has all been blown open. And in Christ, we come into the very presence of God. Access has been opened for us. Verse 51, notice again. And the earth shook and the rocks were split. There is a violent seismic activity associated with the death of Christ. When God inaugurated the Mosaic Covenant with the people there at Mount Sinai, he witnessed that covenant, according to Exodus chapter 19 and verse 18, by shaking the mountains violently. So here, too, he once again witnesses the abrogation of that covenant and the implementation of that new and long-promised new covenant By an earth shattering event again. He shakes the earth that no one can miss. That no one can miss. That something has changed. Access to God is now open through Christ, our new and great high priest. Secondly, death is conquered. Access is open. Secondly, death is conquered. Now, death is a result of sin. Isn't that right? According to Romans chapter 6 and verse 23, the wages of sin is death. God says to Adam, right? In the day you eat of the fruit, you shall surely die. And he died. And as Genesis chapter 5 makes very, very clear, so did every other person who has descended from him. That's us. Sin and death. Death is a result of sin. Death is a result of sin. So, whoever conquers death, conquers sin. You see? To conquer death is to conquer sin. And so here, Matthew records for us this this most interesting account. Verses 52-53. The tombs were opened, it says, and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. And coming out of the tombs after his resurrection, they entered the holy city and appeared to many. Period. Stop. Matthew's the only one to record this event. He's the only one to record it. The other gospel writers make no mention of it. Furthermore, this is the only place where Matthew records it. This is the only information available with regard to this event. Now, the curiosity questions, uh, you know, are a mile long. Sorry. Sorry. Because the curiosity questions really are unimportant. Unimportant. They're unimportant to what Matthew wants us to see and know. Now, some commentators go so far as to say that Matthew made this up in order to get across his point, and and nothing could be further from the truth. This is true and real earth history. But he just doesn't entertain our curiosity in it. So there are a lot of questions that just have to go unanswered. So after the sermon, you know, don't come ask me all your questions. I don't know. I don't know. Probably worth saying here, helpful to say for us, you know, trapped in our own culture and century, and so forth, that the tombs spoken of here are not the graves that you and I are familiar with. They didn't dig holes in the ground and place bodies in them and then cover them over with earth. Okay? In Israel, they would bury in rock tombs. They would be hollowed. either be natural caves or they'd be hollowed out of the rock, and then the, the dead would be placed in these caves. It enabled them, the family later, to bury multiple family members in the same tomb. So this great seismic event here, the end of verse 51, where the earth shook and the rocks were split and the tombs were opened. The earthquake split open these tombs. It collapsed the roofs. It ripped open these graves. Now, the uh, punctuation here in the Greek is uh, fluid. Where the period goes is open to some differing opinion. I'm going to read it again to you and just read it the way the New American Standard punctuated it, and then I'm going to come back and offer you a different punctuation, which I think actually better accords with what probably happened. Let's we'll pick it up at the end of verse 51. And the earth shook and the rocks were split. The tombs were opened, comma, and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. And coming out of the tombs after his resurrection, they entered the holy city and appeared to many. The way it's punctuated there, what it appears to say is that the earthquake ripped open the tombs and the the dead were raised there. And for two days, they sort of hung around outside the city of Jerusalem until after the resurrection of Christ, and then they entered into the city. I don't think that's what happened. So I'd like to suggest to you that at verse 52, that first clause There ought to be a period there. The earth shook and the rocks were split and the tombs were opened. Period. New sentence. And many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised and coming out of the tombs after the resurrection, they entered the holy city and appeared to many. I think what Matthew is trying to say to us is the seismic activity split open the graves, but it was the resurrection of Christ that brought about the resurrection of these dead Jewish saints who then entered into the city and appeared to many witnesses. I think that's the more logical way it unfolded. Now, what kind of resurrection was this? Was this a resuscitation or a resurrection? You remember Lazarus? He's, his was, uh, it was a, a legit resurrection, right? Three days in the tomb, he had been put back, back together again, and Jesus had raised him according to... Uh, to uh, John 11, but the problem is that poor old Lazarus had to die again. So was this a Lazarus-like resurrection where these, these uh, Jewish saints, and we don't know anything more about them than that, so we don't know who they are. Some would speculate that you know it was Abraham and people like that, but I have trouble believing that because Abraham's not buried outside of Jerusalem. So I don't know who, I mean David was buried outside of Jerusalem, so if you like, maybe it was King David. But Matthew doesn't say that, so I prefer to, to, to just see this as Jewish believers that were buried there on the hill on the, uh, the Mount of Olives, the side of the Mount of Olives. They were buried there, and they came out of the tomb. They were resurrected. They entered into the city, and they appeared to people who knew who they were, which leads me to believe that their contemporaries were still alive. So they'd recognize them. You know, they didn't have Facebook in those days. So, it would be hard to know unless you knew them personally. But they were raised from the dead. I don't think, Pinion, don't think it's Lazarus-like. I entertained that for a while in my mind, but I, but I don't think so. I think, it's, I think that these are best understood as uh, the first fruit of resurrection. According to 1 Corinthians 15, Jesus himself is the first fruit of the resurrection unto life. And so that these Old Testament saints are themselves resurrected and become with him the first fruit. John Walvoord Uh, postulates this idea. I think he's on to something here. He refers back to Leviticus 23, verses 10 to 14. I'm not going to go there. But there, in the first fruit of the the harvest, what would happen is the the people would bring their early produce into the priest as an offering and demonstrate by that the reality that that the harvest himself is coming and it's going to be abundant. And I think that's probably what's going on here. Is that these witnesses are resurrected... They appear within the city of Jerusalem over a period of time to various people, and they, they witness to the, the residents there of Jerusalem the reality that Jesus is alive and that the resurrection and the life to come is now here. It is breaking in. You could see it as a, as a proto-fulfillment of Daniel chapter 12 and verse 2, where he speaks about the resurrection unto life. I think that's what's happening here. And the reason Matthew points this out to us, the reason Matthew recounts this for us, is he wants us to recognize that the king has authority over life and death. He has authority over life and death. He has conquered death by his own death and resurrection. Notice, again, Matthew says that they... They rose with his resurrection, or after his resurrection, verse 53. Then they entered the city. They entered the city. Remember Jesus' words to Martha in uh, John 11. they are there at the tomb of Lazarus. He says to her, Martha, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even if he dies. And everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? Do you believe this? Beloved, Jesus has thrown open access to God. Jesus has conquered death. And third, lives are changed because of it. Lives are changed because of it. And that's the third lesson that Matthew wants you tonight to take away. From his account here, beginning in verse 54. Now the centurion and those who were with him, keeping guard over Jesus when they saw the earthquake and the things that were happening, became very frightened and said, truly this was the Son of God. Truly this was the Son of God. Now Matthew has a, a habit of pointing out Gentile faith particularly in contrasting it with Jewish unbelief. And he does that throughout his gospel so that we might see that and, and recognize the reality that, that, uh, that the Gentiles are welcome to the, to the foot of the throne of the king of Israel. Earlier in his gospel, in chapter 8 and verse 10, Matthew points this out to us with the account of a Roman centurion. You remember who, who came to Jesus and he, and he, uh, he was asking Jesus to heal uh, his uh, servant. And, and, uh, and Jesus says, I'll come. And he says to him, you know, it's not necessary for you to come. I'm a man under authority, right? Just give you a word and that's good enough. And you remember how Jesus responds to that? He looks around at his countrymen and he says, according to Matthew chapter 8, and verse 10, truly, I say to you, I have not found such great faith in anyone in Israel. This centurion, this Roman soldier, is is set apart as a model of what it means to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. So here Matthew circles back around again, and there at the foot of the cross, what do we find? But we find a centurion again. The centurion and his squad of soldiers. Those that have actually overseen and, and, and brought about the crucifixion of Christ. Ones for whom Jesus has prayed. We know it's the centurion. Luke 23, 47 tells us it's the centurion. Matthew just says, uh, now the centurion and those with him. So it's, it's all of these soldiers. And these are, these are battle-hardened. Soldiers, right? These are Roman soldiers. These are men who are not all that easily impressed or terrified. And yet notice what Matthew says, he says about them here, when they saw the earthquake and the things that were happening, became very frightened. Same word used, by the way, over in Matthew chapter 17 and verse 6 to speak of the transfiguration and what happens to the disciples when they see the glorified Christ. They are undone. And that's exactly what happens to these Roman soldiers here. I think it's interesting. They see the earthquake. How do you see an earthquake? I think what he's talking about is that they see the result of the earthquake, right? And the things that were happening. Certainly the darkness. They experience the darkness of the judgment of God. So, so they're there and they see and they hear all of this. They're witnesses to, to Christ's Himself and and his words as he spoke there. And and in all of that, they are humbled. And they are fearful. And then they do the most amazing thing. They confess. They confess what the crowds and the religious uh, leaders mocked. Right? Go back to uh, verse 40. The crowds, and uh, as we, we said, the, the crowds there in verse 40 are, are likely the ones that were there at the praetorium calling out for Jesus to be crucified. The crowds that said, we, uh, you know, his blood be on us and on our children. They sort of followed the parade out there because they, you know, wanted to watch the, the events. They wanted to watch him be crucified. and So they're there taunting him, right? Verse 40, you who are going to destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself. If you are the son of God, come down from the cross. They're mocking him. In his declaration that he is the son of God. Look down to verse 43. The religious leadership of the nation. The ones who are supposed to know. The ones who who are supposed to know the scriptures. And are supposed to prepare the way for the Messiah. They're supposed to receive the Messiah. And point the nation to him. Become his greatest enemies. And they mock him. He trusts in God. Let God rescue him now if he delights in him. For he said, I am the son of God. And then we come to these soldiers. These soldiers. And when they see the whole thing unfold, they are humbled. They are terrified. And then they express in belief what the nation expressed in mocking. Truly, for real, this was the Son of God. Now, is their expression of faith fully orbed and fully Christian? No. No. There's more to it than that, to be sure. But they, upon their lips, are no longer mocking. They are declaring the truth of who Christ is. Beloved, their lives have changed. Their lives have changed. And any One who comes to understand the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Recognizes that access to the Father has been thrown open through Him. Recognizes that death has been conquered through Him. And if if death has been conquered, then sin has been conquered. And that changes you. That changes you. It is to know, it is to believe, and it is to trust in this reality that transforms a human heart. It's an amazing confession of faith here in verse 54. Truly, this is the Son of God. It's that amazing confession that is going to form the basis of the next chapter. In the end of that next chapter in what we call the Great Commission, right? Where we are to go out into all the world and and declare the reality of what? That Jesus is Lord. That Jesus is Lord. That has propelled the church for 2,000 years and it will continue to propel the church into the future until Christ returns. It is that reality that Jesus is Lord. That everything stands or falls on. Matthew would not have us miss it. I pray that you have not missed it. That you understand that there is access to God only through the resurrected Christ. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father How? But by me. The truth of that statement invalidates all other attempts at being made right with your Creator. All religious figures of history have died and remain dead. It is Christ alone Who has been raised from the dead and lives forevermore. And by his conquest of death, we know for sure that he has solved the sin problem. And it is by faith in Christ that you and I are changed. May the Spirit of God apply the truth this morning to our hearts. Father, Matthew would not have us miss the incredible reality of what was accomplished there on the cross. His interest and his focus is not upon the suffering, but upon the accomplishment. Our Father, I pray for each and every one of us that, Your Spirit would enable us to reflect on that reality as well. We can't walk away from this, Father, unchanged. Not if we've really thought about it. Not if we've really considered it. Whether that change be be life everlasting, that we become the child of God, or, or whether we've been a child of God for a long time, To meditate on this reality, to think on these things cannot help but change us, to to realign us, to help us to think rightly about ourselves and about the world. And so may your Spirit apply the truths of this passage where they are needed in each and every one of our hearts. We pray for Jesus' sake. Amen.